BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Wow, a lot of news going on here today. President Biden just uh, gave a speech in which he said that he's releasing a million barrels a day of oil from the National Strategic Petroleum Reserve. In answer to questions afterwards, he said he thought that that would probably lower prices between 10 and 35 cents a gallon for gasoline. You know, how quickly that'll happen is a function of, you know, things moving through the supply chain and all that kind of stuff. And he pointed out that what we need to do is lower the demand for energy, and we do that by insulating our houses and using more efficient appliances and things like that, and lower the demand and raise the supply of energy. And we do that by bringing online solar, wind, you know, the inexpensive forms of energy that have been proven, have been demonstrated to be, you know, very, very successful. So one dimension of the gas prices is this larger issue of inflation that has Americans pretty legitimately freaked out that, you know, we're running inflation of between five and seven percent, depending on whose month-to-month figures you're looking at and which inflation index you're using. But, you know, that's not chicken feed. That means that people's savings, if they're just keeping them in, you know, a checking account or a savings account or something like that, they're losing money. It means that salaries go don't go as far as they used to. Um, and so what's going on with this? What, what is the story behind this inflation? Well, there have been a number of economists. Robert Reich is probably the most outspoken among them. Uh, Paul Krugman also has been saying, singing this song for several months now, who have been pointing out that there are really two things going on. The first is that we had a, you know, two years of suppressed demand for services. And, and somewhat increased in some, you know, over the last six months, increased demand for goods. As people weren't leaving their homes, but they were still buying stuff because they still had some money. And, and that, of course, will drive inflation in and of itself. Secondly, as the pandemic is wrapping up and people are getting back to normal, there's a, an explosion of demand for goods and services, and that is inflationary. Short term, but it's inflationary. We saw the same thing after the end of World War II. The exact same thing. And it lasted a year or so. So that's, you know, one, one story about it. The other story about what's causing this inflation is that America's business sector has become so monopolized that there's no longer any competition. And the fat cats are cashing in. Before Reagan, in 1983, Ronald Reagan stopped 
the government from enforcing the antitrust laws, by and large. The Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission and, and, and whatnot, you know, just go ahead and approve any of the mergers you want. Uh, let, let, them go, let them go nuts. It doesn't matter. He adopted uh, Robert Bork's theory. Robert Bork had been pitching this since the early 1960s, that uh, monopoly is not a bad thing. The only time monopoly is a bad thing if it, is if it causes higher prices. Well, <laughs> guess what? Here we are. But in any case, Reagan, you know, adopted that whole that whole ideology and no president since him, Republican or Democrat, has reversed it. Joe Biden has given lip service to it, but he has not yet reversed it either. So, you know, big corporations have gotten bigger and bigger. And what happens when that happens is that, or what that, the, what that produces is a lack of competition. And guess what? This is kind of, you know, high school economics. Competition keeps prices down. In a, in a monopolistic environment where there's no competition or very little competition or the large monopolists basically work like a cartel, they, they interact with each other, prices go up. You know, Delta Airlines raises their prices by 10 bucks, uh, you know, for a seat on New York to Los Angeles. And within, what, 30 seconds, United has done the same. I mean, you know, this, this is how it works. Whether it's big oil or big airlines or big pharma or big food or big, you know, hotels, whatever it may be. And sure enough, the federal data was released yesterday. A great piece about this over at Common Dreams. They're titled, Their Inflation Strategy is Working. Yesterday, the, uh, the federal government, the Commerce Department Bureau of Economic Analysis, the BEA, just released their uh, domestic corporate profits adjusted for inventory valuation and capital consumption, which is a long way of saying, here's how well American corporations are doing. And what they found was that U.S. corporate profits jumped last year 25%, the highest in history. American corporations, domestic corporate profits, went up two, went up, reached $2.8 trillion last year. This is the largest increase since 1976 in percentage terms, and it's the largest increase in dollar terms ever in the history of the world, or certainly the history of the United States. Now, how is that working out for workers? Well, the so-called labor share of national income, in other words, the, the amount that gets paid to working people, fell back to pre-pandemic levels. So wages are actually going down, or last year, wages actually went down by the end of the year, while corporate profits went up 25%, $2.8 trillion. Lindsay Owens is uh, the executive director of the Groundwork Collaborative and is quoted uh, in this article, quote, uh, CEOs can't stop bragging on corporate earnings calls about jacking up prices on consumers to keep their profits soaring. And today's annual profit data shows just how well that inflation strategy is working. In other words, these companies are all raising prices and they're claiming that they have to do it because of inflation. And they're raising the prices to increase their profits is what's driving the inflation. It's incredible. They're using the war in Ukraine. Oh, you know, there's a war in Ukraine. It's, it's, it's driving up fuel and food prices around the world. Well, yeah, but does that mean that you have to 
have the highest profit in history? This is what I call, and I've, I've written several books about this, probably Screwed is the best one, The Undeclared War on the Middle Class. This is what I call the cancer stage of capitalism. It's the point where capitalism is no longer accountable to anybody except essentially the ruling class, the, 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 the relatively small group of people who own most of the stock and run most of the companies. And when that happens, capitalism stops working the way it's supposed to. You have to have, I mean, you know, it's, it's the same thing if you had a, if, if the NFL said, you know, we're just going to throw out the rule books. Go out on the field, guys, and do whatever you want. That's pretty much what neoliberalism is. That's what Reagan did in the 1980s to our economy. And for 40 years, they've been getting more and more and more brazen and outrageous and greedy in their quest for profits. It's reached the point now where Americans are waking up to this. There was a, a, a major study that a Data for Progress poll uh, did uh, just in the last few months. And they, the majority of U.S. voters agree with this statement. Large corporations are taking advantage of the pandemic to raise prices unfairly on consumers and increase profits. The majority of Americans believe that. Bernie Sanders is going to start holding hearings on this in the next week or so. He's the, the chair of the Senate Budget Committee, which is the, you know, one of the most powerful committees in, Cong in, the, in, the, in Congress, in the Senate. He's going to hold a hearing titled, Corporate Profits Are Soaring As Prices Rise, Our Corporate Greed and Profiteering Fueling Inflation. And the solution, he says, is we need a windfall profits tax. I'm with Bernie on this. We definitely need a, a, a windfall profits tax. I mean, it's, there's got to be a way to regulate this. I, you know, the windfall profits tax, I think, is the least desirable way to do it. The most desirable way to do it is to reverse Reagan's ending the enforcement of the, of the antitrust laws and start breaking up these giant corporations, these monopolies. But that's going to take a level of political will that I don't think anybody can muster right now. But you never know. You know, if enough people get uh, outraged enough, maybe it can happen. Barney in Argos, Indiana. Hey, Barney, what's on your mind today? Well, what you just said, I think, uh, is what you've been talking about for a long time. That the reason we don't talk about it is because nine times uh, to one is the right-wing uh, media. We have them all over the place, and they kind of drown out the truth. But anyway, what I wanted to uh, talk about before that was um, getting through this uh, billionaire's tax cut. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I unfortunately agree with you that it's necessary, but it's you mean very tax difficult. increase. Tax, I'm sorry, tax yeah. increase because of uh, the Republican numbers in in Congress that are controlled by uh, by these special interests. And when Roosevelt was president, you have to remember that he had huge majorities, and so did LBJ. Yeah. In in the Congress. Yeah. So it, so it was it, it wasn't uh, difficult for them, uh, even though there was a lot of opposition. They called Roosevelt the traitor to his class. They kept giving this over and over again. Oh, they sure did. Well, well, well wouldn't Reagan be a traitor to his class? I mean, if this is never mentioned, Reagan was from a small town in Illinois. He was from a poor family, and we know that he went to Hollywood and so forth and so on. 
That's right. His father was an alcoholic, had a hard time holding a job. He was constantly in poverty, Ronald Reagan. Right. And and he did get his job through the WPA or through the... Uh, That's right. Uh, well, he was a big yeah. advocate for the Democrats. I mean, he did campaign oh. ads for Hubert Humphrey when he was running for the Senate in 1946. Absolutely. Now, now, now Trump ran. He wasn't a tra he, he actually running as a traitor to his class because he promised the the low income people, the people that were dispossessed through the uh, economic forces that he was going to protect them. Yeah. 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 No, I think I think you're absolutely right, Barney. It is going to be a heavy lift. And, uh, you know, again, another reason why we all need to be participating in politics and letting our politicians know what we think. Barney, thank you. Thank you for your uh, for your wisdom. Ruth in West Los Angeles. Hey, Ruth, what's up? Hi. Um, I just wanted to point out, which, you know, is self-obvious, and you may have even pointed it out earlier, that the Republicans are the ones that are always screaming about the deficit, screaming about balancing the budget, and it will be very interesting to see what creative things they come up with to knock down what Biden is proposing. And, um, and it's important, Ruth, that we all remember that the current budget of a little over $20 trillion, if you take... The, the combined impact of Reagan's tax cuts, Bush, George W. Bush's tax cuts, and Donald Trump's tax cuts, just those tax cuts equal more than that $20 trillion in the deficit. Not to mention another 7 or $8 trillion from the two wars that George W. Bush lied us into. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you rest your case and I rest mine. There, there you um, go. People should be on the lookout to see just who squawks the loudest. Yeah, Thank you. I'm with you. Thank you, Ruth. David in North Miami Beach, Florida. Hey, David, what's up? Hey, y'all. The bad news, don't think uh, the tax hikes will get past Joe Manchin. The good news is I think that will give Biden the excuse to say, hey, IRS, corporations are people. Go tax them exactly the same. Not just the corporate tax, but the capital gains tax. Right. And while well, he's added, uh, change how we define unemployment, because too many are employed, but what a million of us are making under seven and a quarter an hour. That's criminal. Yeah. Let's have employment Which, mark. Um, you know, people making at least ten, eleven is a bare minimum. It should be twenty an hour. If you're not making at least 20 an hour, I would call that un unemployment because someone yeah. else is... Well, it depends, on where, it depends on where you live in the country. Um, but, but isn't it fascinating, yeah, but David, that, that Republicans, last weekend, every single one of the Sunday shows had Republicans on, and they were all squealing about inflation. But were any of them saying, because of inflation, we need to inflation adjust the minimum wage? Also factor in the, the hidden cost of commuting, of super commuting, of hyper commuting. Yep. Factor in that free time, sometimes called a variation of Amazon time, where it's work related, but you're not paid. Yeah, so no, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. Bad. David, David, thank you very much. Well said. Ken in Minneapolis. Hey, Ken, what's up? Yes, I was talking about Social Security, and there was always people talking about it's going broke. Yeah, if you make over $140,000, the money that you make beyond $140,000 is not subject to taxation for Social Security. And if it were, in other words, if billionaires paid the exact same percentage of their income in, into Social Security that you and I do, 100%, right. if, if, that, if that were the case, Social Security would be solvent for the next 75 years. Period. End of discussion. Social Security, when it started out, didn't cover everybody like it does now. 
and they expanded right. it multiple times, particularly in the 40s and 50s. And some of those expansions of Social Security, you had people who hate Social Security, mostly the Republicans, saying, but wait right. a minute, you know, you're going to be you're going to be giving extra bonuses to people who also have pensions that have been funded by federal dollars like federal workers. So you got to take it away from them. And so those were right. the compromises that were necessary in order to keep Social Security funded. And so, you know, th th that's what's going on. So. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I want to touch on three quick stories in this hour and then pick up your phone calls. There's a lot we've been talking about today, and I know a lot of people want to weigh in on it. The first is Joe Manchin. The second is uh, what's going on in Tennessee. It's a big deal. And the third is what happened just in Canada yesterday. I'll, I'll share all those things with you. But let's start out with Joe Manchin. I pointed out back when Build Back Better was uh, before us all uh, that I was just astonished that Joe, that, uh, Joe Manchin didn't jump on this. I mean, it, it, and frankly, I was astonished that when they put the bill together, the Democrats in the United States House and Senate, that they didn't include the Joe Manchin bridge in West Virginia and the Kirsten Cinema public opera building or whatever in Phoenix, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> politicians have been doing this forever, right? You, you, want to, you want to get somebody to go along with your infrastructure project, name part of it after them. But Manchin blew that completely away. Almost $3 trillion that would have gone for infrastructure in the United States, a half a trillion of it to green our country, to reduce our dependence on Saudi Arabian and Russian fossil fuels. And yes, America is arguably energy independent, but we're still importing fuel from Saudi Arabia and Russia. I mean, we just, we just cut off Russia uh, last week, but um, you know, it's, it's, the, the Saudi oil is still coming, oil from all over the world. 
Not to mention the fact that it's poisoning the earth. So why did Manchin veto that bill or, or you know, refuse to vote to, fill, to end the filibuster that would have allowed its passage? I mean, we know why Kirsten Cinema did, or at least we think we did, that the, you know, she's jumped in with the billionaires. They're, you know, Politico ran a story about how she's taking money now from the same billionaires who are funding Republicans. But for Manchin, I think it's just a little more transparent. He makes a half a million dollars a year from his very own personal coal business. Now, that's been widely known. But what's absolutely fascinating about this, and that, uh, pardon me, doesn't get anything close to the coverage that I think it should get, is that back in 1987, during the Reagan administration, when Joe Manchin was a state senator, and he was not making all that much money, right? As a state senator, I've got his, uh, his uh, income in here. Anyhow, it was, it was not a great amount of money. He, and and his, family, his family owned a carpet business, and they were in trouble, too. And uh, so he started helping Grant Town Power get up and running. Now, this is, this is a, a, Grant Town is a, a, a town in his district, and, or just outside his district, actually, when he was a state senator. And in 1998, he helped them get the permits for this plant. Now, this plant burns a particular type of coal. It's called GOB, G-O-B. It's generally not even burned. It's usually sold as waste coal. You know, when you're, when you're mining coal, you get the, you know, these, these seams of super rich coal. But then around the edges of the seams, there's coal interspersed with regular rock. That's called gob coal because it's, it's, you know, it's very inefficient. It's very expensive to burn. And uh, he, uh, according to this report by Laura Clausen over on, on dailycoes.com, it's titled, Joe Manchin may be smaller and more corrupt than we even realized. She writes, to get the permits for the Grant Town power plant, Manchin got a state official to persuade Monaheg, this power company, also called Mon Power, to agree to limit emissions from one of its nearby power plants because the two of them together would have exceeded federal emissions standards for uh, sulfur dioxide because this new plant that Manchin was helping get online was so polluting because it's using gob coal rather than regular coal. And guess who was selling gob coal? Manchin's coal company. The guy who issued the permit later said that he didn't know that Manchin had a financial stake in it and quote, it would have bothered me had he known. Then, so Manchin gets this power plant up and running on the coal that his, as a state senator, gets the, you know, juices or uh, greases the skids for the, for the permits. And they're, they're burning exclusively his coal. Then he cuts a deal with them that a percentage of the revenue from the electricity that they make will be kicked back to him personally, to this state senator who helped make it happen. And it's apparently been being cut, kicked back to him ever since. Laura Clausen notes it's not illegal, but, you know, one lawyer who specializes in these things say these aren't deals you give to everybody. And then, as a state legislature, legislator, Manchin passed a tax break 
for power plants that burn gob. Well, <laughs> like the one that he just helped put into, into business. And gob coal, this waste coal, it's not just dirtier, it's also more expensive. Um, uh, Mark Sumner explained this over on, on Daily Coast. He said it contains more non-coal material, lowering the energy output and increasing the amount of ash. It also contains more sulfur and heavy metals, creating toxins that either go up in the smokestack or end up in the coal slurry at the plant. In other words, it produces a lot more poison. So then they asked for a rate increase. And when Joe Manchin became governor of West Virginia, his staff intervened to make sure that they could get their rate increase. What, presumably so they can continue kicking money back to Manchin? The New York Times did a deep dive into this, and this is what they said, and I quote from the New York Times, since 2016, Grant Town has cost Monpower, this is the, the, this power plant burning Joe Manchin's coal, for which he's making a half million a year, plus his electric revenue, you know, uh, percentage revenues, assuming he's still getting them. Uh, back to the New York Times. Since 2016, Grant Town Power has cost Mon Grant Town has cost Mon Power 117 million dollars more than it would have to spend to buy that power from other sources, according to documents filed last year with the Public Services Commission. And it's and, and therefore a half a million bucks a year is going right into Joe Manchin's pockets. Which raises the question, you know, is this going to be Joe Manchin's legacy? Is the fact that these stories are now coming out about how corrupt this guy is the reason why all of a sudden he's kind of going along with whatever Joe Biden wants? That he's hoping the Democrats will say, well, you know, he may be a SOB, but he's at least our SOB. I think so. And frankly, as long as the Senate is 50-50, I'm willing for him to be our SOB. I'm not calling for his impeachment or his replacement or anything like that until the next primary comes along. And that won't be for another two and a half years or three and a half years, actually, I think. So, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see where this goes. The other thing I wanted to flag for you in this, uh, in this first segment was this, uh, quote, boring bill in Tennessee that everyone should be watching as the head of the guest essay over the New York Times today by uh, Margaret Renkel. I commend this to you. I recommend you read it. You know, she, she points out there's all kinds of crazy stuff that Tennessee has been doing, right? Uh, you know, banning books and, uh, you know, an abortion bill that's worse than Texas and a handgun bill that'll let any old 18-year-old just carry any concealed weapon they want. All kinds of crazy stuff. But this is, this is bizarre. What happened in, in, in Tennessee is that in Memphis, there was an oil company that ran, wanted to run an oil pipeline right through the middle of a historic black neighborhood. And right over an area with sandy soil that has a water aquifer underneath it that supplies water to over a million people. And black activists in Memphis got together and passed a, got the city council to pass a law saying, you may not run your oil pipeline through our city. You're going to have to route it around the city. So what is the legislature of Tennessee doing? They're passing a law making it illegal for cities like Memphis to pass laws to prevent oil companies from running a pipeline through their city. So now the governor will, you know, or the state will declare eminent domain and they will take people's property and they'll run an oil pipeline right through the, this historic black part of Tennessee. 
This is supposed to be, the, the Republican Party is supposed to be the party of limited government power, right? Small government. But here they are saying, no, we, the big government of the entire state of Tennessee, say to you, Memphis, you may not pass that law. You may not protect your own citizens. You may not protect your own historically black districts. There's profits to be made. The oil companies want money. Come on, we've got to have this oil pipeline. To hell with what people want. They did the same thing, by the way, uh, with other legislation. Right? Uh, Nashville passed a law designed to protect neighborhood homes from being turned into short-term rentals occupied by rotating hordes of drunk bridesmaids, uh, you know, according to Margaret Renkel in, in the, the New York Times today. Uh, and so what did the state do? Well, the Tennessee General Assembly introduced a bill that would make the city ordinance impossible to enforce. If the residents of Decatur, Georgia, another state nearby, are considering a ban on gasoline-powered leaf blowers, the Georgia General Assembly is right now considering a bill that bans banning gasoline-powered leaf blowers. Seriously. This is your Republican Party, the people who keep saying, oh, we're big believers in the Ninth Amendment and then the Tenth Amendment and states' rights and small government and, and uh, you know, power should go from the bottom up, not from the top down. But, by the way, if a community wants to keep their water clean or keep their historic districts historic, or if they want to, you know, uh, quiet down the leaf blowers or require people to buy electric ones, no, you can't do that. Because we're the Republican Party and we say, you know, at the state level, and we're taking money from these oil companies and from these gas companies and these gas-powered leaf blower companies. And, and, and we've got to justify these campaign contributions. Don't you understand? This is amazing. She goes on to say, these are some of the regulations, right? Um, uh, regulate gun use, prevent fracking, raise the minimum wage. These have all been, Republicans are trying to overturn all of these local regulations. Raise the minimum wage, welcome labor unions, establish a sanctuary for undocumented immigrants, encourage green energy, decriminalize marijuana, subject their police force to community oversight, or protect LGBTQ businesses from discrimination. Every case, Republicans at a state level have come out and said, no, you may not do that, town, county, city, whatever. You can't do that. And also, you know, of course, the seven-hour gap. This makes Rosemary Woods look like a piker, I mean, who has you now passed away. But the seven-hour, uh, seven-hour, what, 28 minutes, as I recall, seven-hour gap here in the tapes, it's just incredible. Four takeaways from President Biden's budget proposal. This is from this morning's Washington Post. Number one, a major focus of, budgets, of Biden's budget is deficit reduction cutting the deficit from 12.4% of the nation's overall economy last year to 4.8% by 2032. Oh, interesting. I was reading that as 2023, it's 2032. So that's over the next 10 years. It will cut the, uh, the, the budget deficit. My apologies if I spoke in error earlier. Number two, the billionaire income tax, minimum income tax would levy the 20% minimum tax on all income, including unrealized capital gains for Americans with assets worth more than $100 million. And that's uh, $2.5 trillion in new tax revenue. $1.1.5 trillion goes to new spending programs, and uh, the rest goes to reducing the deficit. This is in part because Joe Manchin is the deciding vote, and he said he will not vote for a budget that raises the deficit. So we're going to cut the deficit. Biggest deficit cut ever. 
Build Back Better, by the way, all that great, that half trillion dollars for greening America, for dealing with climate change, it's all vanished from the budget because it couldn't get past Joe Manchin. He also, Joe Manchin also said that he couldn't support a package which has child care or ed, elder care support, universal pre-K or huge investments in green energy. <sighs> yeah. So what do we do with that? The Fed chair, Jerome Powell, who, by the way, I should continually point out, was a Republican before he was put in charge of the Fed. He said the expectation going into this year was that we would basically see inflation peaking in the first quarter, they then maybe leveling out. That story has already fallen apart. So now we have Jerome Powell saying that he's going to have some substantial rate increases, six of them they're planning, over the next year or so. Robert Reich at Substack Newsletter is saying, you know, if you do that, you're going to throw the United States into recession. And I think he's right. So how do you think this is going to play out? A lot of questions on the table for you. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Also, a crazy alert for you. Yes, when you think of manly activities, what do you think of? Well, you know, most Americans think of drinking beer and watching sports and grilling meat or fixing cars. But NBC News' Ben Collins is reporting that there's a new hardcore maggot movement. Seriously, this is the new thing among the maggot mob, you know, the Trump humpers saying that it's feminine to watch sports. Apparently, they think that instead of staying at home and watching sports, you should, you know, grab your flagpole and go out and beat up some police officers or, or uh, you know, burn down the house of your liberal neighbors or something like that. Uh, he says they call it, they call sports sports ball, and they complain constantly about people who sit at home and watch it. This is uh, this is an illustration. This is from, again, from NBC News. From a pro-Trump forum, they're reporting on this. Quote, you're not white if you're still watching sports ball at this point. Watching sports ball this spring or summer? Screw you for being a short-term memory piece of crap. I'm cleaning the language up a little bit here. Uh, so <laughs> Collins then comments that combined with conservatives' newfound desire to bring down Disney... MAGA heads, what I call Trump humpers, are engaging in a full divorce from regular people. 
He writes, this is again Ben Collins, NBC News. He writes, it's hard to think of anything more alienating in America than let's hate football fans and work to stop kids from watching Frozen. But that's where the far right has been laser focused in the last month. They're trying to take down sports and Disney. And why? Homophobia. Why sports? I'm scratching my head on that one. Is it that, is that they're being triggered by watching football players pat each other on the butt after a play? Is that it? I, I, just, I just don't know. Maybe, maybe you can illustrate this or you know, fill me in on this. Anyhow, let's pick up your phone calls, Larry in Los Angeles. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today? Hi. I want to point out the fact that our liberal bias media and these two right-wing uh, propaganda machines that appeared on my cable station after Donald Trump lost, they're all running around trying to uh, act like Biden is having the worst first year of any president in history. And again, I need to point out the fact that Eisenhower, Nixon, Reagan, George W. Bush all had recessions by this time in their first term. And, and Biden has seen 550,000 jobs per month created every month on average. He's, um, he, the GDP was at 5.7%. Uh, again, that's a second best in the last 40 years. Uh, since Biden took office, the value of the dollar has increased. And this is something that doesn't normally happen when you actually have real inflation. Mm -hmm. And and right up until uh, Russia attacked Ukraine, gold was also um, running flat. So all the all the conditions that that would show that we were having real inflation, the thing that everybody's claiming is why Biden is failing is because of the inflation. That inflation was fueled part in part by. Uh, Donald Trump spending and the Federal Reserve spending a total of something like uh, $12.5 trillion. Um, and then Biden comes along and spends $1.5 trillion. And, they, and since they're blaming the uh, inflation on the spending, they're claiming that Biden is the one that's at fault with the um, inflation and not the $12 trillion that uh, Donald Trump and, and the Federal Reserve spent. Yeah. It, it makes absolutely no sense. And then on top of that, they also falsely accused Biden of signing the surrender deal in Afghanistan and causing that, that debacle that happened as we were leaving when it was Donald Trump who was running around bragging and saying that the, I fixed it so they that Biden can never reverse it. Right. He fixed it so it would fail. He did, and, and he shut and down Army, seven out of the eight Air Force bases so it was hard for us to evacuate people and, and machinery. He, we, he took out, uh, we had 13,000 people there. He took out 10,000 of them, left, and he took he he removed none of our citizens, right. zero, right. And they blame and and yet our news media because they've they've been working on this for a, ever since Biden became president. They're trying to make sure Biden can't increase taxes on the rich. Yeah, that's and the bottom line. Time, so Larry, uh, as 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 our resident numbers guy and uh, you know econ guy, I'm I'm curious your thoughts on the many predictions that I'm hearing, um, mostly from investment. People, not not people who have a partisan axe to grind. Um, there's an investment newsletter that I subscribe to. I, in fact, they've been on the show before, the Aiden sisters, and 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 a number of other places are saying, you know, there's probably a recession coming. The market's probably going to drop. Um, housing, the housing market's going to cool off, and this is all because the Fed is raising interest rates to try to control inflation. And by the way, and and Robert Reich and Paul Krugman have been pointing pointing this out. 
Um, that the, the inflation is not caused by low Fed interest rates, as you just pointed out, and all the indicators indicate that that's not the case. And so the Fed, you know, being run by this uh, old Republican, you know, uh, is about to cause a recession. What do you think? That's exactly what they're they have been doing as they try to talk the Fed into to giving us 0.5 percent increases in the Fed rate. That hasn't happened since Bill Clinton was president, and and uh, that. Partisan Alan Greenspan did it to Bill Clinton to try to get George W. Bush in the White House. Right. He kept the Fed rate up to 6.5%. We haven't seen those levels since Bill Clinton was president. And, oh, lo and behold, it's another Democrat in the White House. And guess what? Let's start jacking the Fed rate up again. Right. And you've got a Republican former Carter. banker, Jerome Powell, as the, as the chairman of the Fed. Right. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we need to do I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about it. I'm, I, I think it's I probably... Am. Probably a good time to get out of the market, but uh, but don't take my advice. I, I'm almost always wrong. <laughs> but I think we're, I, don't, I don't think we're going to have a recession. You don't think there's going to be a recession? No, I, I think he's going to fail like he failed to give Bill Clinton a recession. Oh, that's interesting. So you think the economy is strong enough to power through this? Well, I hope you're right, Larry. I really do. You know, it would be a good thing for everybody. Larry, it's always great to hear from you. Thank you so much. Mike in uh, Wheaton, Maryland. Hey, Mike, what's up? Yeah, how you doing? Good. Um, Hey, about the five million dollars worth of military equipment left. The Republicans love to rant about, yeah. Yeah, wherever America is done with a war, they don't bring stuff back. By and large, like in Japan, they 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 just pushed it off into the ocean because we got an industry, and you have an industry that's jobs making the stuff, right? And you know. It's only one way. That's yeah, my, under, my understanding, Mike, is that the stuff that could have been relatively easily brought back, and not necessarily brought back to the United States, we've got 700 military bases around the world, it could just be repurposed or you know, reprovisioned someplace else, things like helicopters and airplanes and stuff. We got as much of that out of the country as we physically could. The stuff that we left Correct. behind that might have some value outside of scrap metal, we disabled, so the only value it would have is scrap metal. And we're pretty conscientious about doing both those things. But my point, I still think, still stands that Trump, in his last year, shut down seven of the eight U.S. Air Force bases, which made it a hell of a lot harder for us to get both people and material out of Afghanistan. And that, that's the one that I, I think it's really important to push back yeah. at any Republican who starts squealing about Joe Biden left behind equipment in Afghanistan. Exactly. Because we're going to see the exactly. same thing play out in, in Iraq eventually. Yeah, Mike, thanks a lot for the call. And thanks for listening to SiriusXM. Daryl in Bainbridge, Washington. Hey, Daryl, thanks for, uh, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Hi, Tom. Well, I want to start by uh, telling you that I'm a recovering Catholic, and this gets interesting. Polish, third generation. In the 40s, my mother was uh, denied my admission to a parochial school at really did a number on her mm. and uh, she there was heavy discrimination against poles in the united states in the in the 50s 60s 70s one of my best friends was polish and i remember the polack jokes it, it just tore him up yeah well they, they they were passed on from irish to you know blacks irish you know the whole and they yep. ended up with the poles and they they stuck for a lot longer for some reason yep. i don't know i mean we we took care of the radium, Madame Curie, and uh, yep. a lot of a lot of interesting history there. A lot of suppression in in Poland. I'll get to my point here in a second, Tom. My girlfriend in the '60s uh, was a divorcee, and her, her parents paid a uh, a token uh, under under the 
wire um, uh, thing to the church, and it just disappeared, her divorce. And uh, that was kind of interesting. If you have money, you can... Buying indulgences. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Then in uh, the late 60s, I was in Sweden um, visiting um, my girlfriend's girlfriend, two Finnish ladies, and we got talking about abortions, and they said, oh, no problem. Now, you don't do them here in Sweden. We're too conservative here. We just send them to Poland, 50 bucks, and you can have an abortion there in Warsaw for, for 50. I think it was 50. Yeah. Okay, there, I'm just going down the line here. Like I say, I'm a recovering Catholic for these reasons and more. And um, so in Poland recently, in the last two or three years, the farmers and the conservatives, but mostly farmers, it's an agrarian country, or has been for centuries, um, this uh, prime minister whose brother was killed in the airplane uh, crash, he's, his brother is kind of running the country from, and he's a very conservative uh, guy, and he um, he's running the country from behind the curtain, and uh, he, he found a way to get the Catholicism on the move again. Evidently, in the last... Um, 20, 30 years, people have been having a lot of fun in Krakow and, and Warsaw and prophylactics and pills and so on. And it, it's, it bothers the farmers, which, as I mentioned before, is a, a big part of the voting right. uh, strategy. So, anyway, Daryl, what's uh, your point here? The point, the point is that uh, the Catholic Church was behind this, evidently, because I heard it from a Polish professor here in behind Seattle. what? Behind oh your fascism that you talk about all the time oh Hungary Hungary oh, Brazil right wing authoritarianism that that's my point and the other thing I wanted to and say they're, and I they're know using anti birth control uh, correct you know, too many condoms by the roadside yeah. kind of thing yeah yeah the excuse. farmers evidently are not having that much fun in life it's farming is a lot of work and there's no time well left they want to have a lot of kids so that they can go out and work the farm exactly tom exactly <laughs> no, i wanted to mention um something that made me laugh very very much about two years ago you were really on on the uh, um on the rampage towards trump and his entire administration evidently you said uh, they're trash 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 about three four minutes later an older woman from southern lady called and she said mr hartman i really resent the fact that you're you're calling uh calling these people out as trash you know i have a i have a garbage man who comes a young man he, he's so nice and he's so so nice and you just um silence is golden you were totally cavalier on that and i laughed Okay. I just never laughed so much in my life. I okay. just thought it was funnier than hell. Thank, Thank you, you for that. Very cavalier, Tom. Okay, you're Very welcome. Cavalier. Thanks for the call. Marianne in Eureka, California. Hey, Marianne, what's on your mind today? Yes, thank you. Uh, a caller called about a new video. Uh, got Johnny Got His Gun. I have that book, Johnny Got His Gun. It's by Dalton Trumbull. This is from the and late 19th century, early 20th century? This book was... Um, Came out in 1939. Right. Okay. And um, yes, 1939. And I knew it was before I, I was born. I just wasn't yes. sure when. Yes. Right. Well, I just wanted to let people know that this book 
is great for people that are anti-war. Mm-hmm. And is it about World War One? Yes. Uh huh. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Max in Sacramento. Hey, Max, what's up? Yes, I think that uh, Congress should instead, you know, have all these committees work full time on on it. You know, instead of on what? You know, taking breaks and make laws and all that. You on know, what? We got so many laws on the books. Hang on, just know, a second, Max. What do they need to be looking into? Trump. Oh. <laughs> and his <laughs> crimes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. You know. Well, the, the January 6th committee, you know, is very narrowly focused and... and uh, yeah, but they're not working fast enough. You know, by the time this gets over with, you know, we'll have a new administration and I'm afraid it may be Trump again. I don't think Trump is going to be president again. I'm, I'm frankly far more worried about Ron DeSantis or Tom Cotton well, or, too, you know, but, one of these you know, guys who are actually... I don't think they're going to make it with Trump on the side. Yeah, I don't think Trump is going to be a factor by 2024, but I am concerned that Trump has shown wannabe fascist neo-dictators of America, neo-fascist dictators of America, how to do it. And because he has not suffered any consequence from this, they're figuring, hey, what the hell? And I think the line is relatively short and it's fairly clear. You know, Rick Scott, Ron DeSantis, a lot of them from Florida, Rick Scott, Ron DeSantis, you know, uh, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley. These guys want power. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Ziggy in Anchorage, Alaska. Hey, Ziggy, what's up? Hey, uh, uh, let's go to something more uh, about energy and about uh, how the government treats our uh, resources. Uh-huh. Uh, think about this. If if. Every corporation wants to pay a dividend to the country for our technology that they got from us that uh, we paid for when the taxpayers paid for all this technology. And you all mean like the Internet? They <laughs> we we, we well, all yeah. paid to develop uh, the they Internet? Should be paying a, because they should be paying a dividend to the country for that technology we paid for. It was yeah. our technology that they took and they profit from. Right. Some of that profit should go back to the people. At all times. I think you make a strong argument. It's sort of like, you know, it's like Alaska with the permanent fund. You know, they're they're saying, okay, you're going to take oil out from underneath Alaskan soil. You're going to give, you're going to leave some of that money right here in Alaska and we're going to pass it out to all the people. Maybe we should do the same thing, not only with oil and, and, you know, mined resources, but also with the internet. All the corporations who have profited from the American people's technology that we paid for, when you talk about computers and all this other stuff. Yep. that we, the people, taxpayers pay for. Yeah. No, so I'm, 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 I'm with you, be, Ziggy. You're starting to repeat yourself, but I'm with you. Alex in Brighton, Michigan. Hey, Alex, thanks for listening to the Tom Harvin app. What's up? Well, this is actually about renewable energy. And, you know, now a lot of interesting and efficient work has been done in separating water, salt water, into its components of hydrogen and oxygen. Mm-hmm. And that's great. You know, and you can use solar and renewable energy to do so, right? Right. 
And it's a, more of a question because I've looked into this. It's the idea of taking those two components and sending them via, you know, pipelines, if you will. Uh, sure, you could use the hydrogen directly, but if you could then reconstitute those two components back into uh, clean water because it has no salt, this might be a really useful thing that um, we should look at. Right now, all I can find is that we can use fuel cells for it, which, of course, would have the bonus of creating electricity, but it has its own you know, issues. Or you can take a, a large container and put the two components in and cause an explosion, which um, might be less than a, the right way to go. So I'm just posing to you, does this make sense? And do you know of any people who are looking into this method of desalinization? Yeah. In terms of using it as a way of producing water, my guess is it would be relatively inefficient. Using it as a storage system for energy, though, I mean, on, on the one end, this goes back to, you know, pre-Einstein, that outside of nuclear reactions, energy is neither created nor lost ever. And uh, so if, it ta if there's a certain energy input to split a water molecule into, uh, into its component of, you know, a uh, two hydrogen and one oxygen atoms, then yeah. later when those are recombined um, through through fire, essentially, you know, the, right. the amount of energy that would be released when they're recombined would be roughly equivalent to the energy that was put in when, when they were torn apart. Um, well, so that, so you, you just you think of it in terms mm -hmm. of an energy storage system rather than a, a cool way to come up with distilled water. But I just want to point out that in that reconst in using it for energy, you know, create with a creating a mi an explosion, the side effect is you will get water. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, Alex, thank you for the call. Our book club selection today is titled "The End of Ice: Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning." In the Path of Climate Disruption by Dar Jamail. The dedication of the book, this book is dedicated to the future generations of all species. Know that there were many of us who did what we could. This is from the introduction. The fall lasts long enough that I have time to watch the blue ice race upward, eons of time compressed into glacial ice flashing by in fractions of seconds. I assume I've fallen far enough that I've pulled my climbing partner, Sean, into the crevasse with me. This is what it's like to die in the mountains, a voice in my head tells me. Just as my mind completes that thought, the rope wrenches my climbing harness up. I bounce languidly up and down as the dynamic physics inherent in the rope play themselves out. Somehow, Sean has checked my fall while still on the surface of the glacier. I brush the snow and chunks of ice from my hair, arms, and chest and pull down the sleeves of my shirt. Finding my glacier glasses hanging from the pocket of my climbing bib, I tuck them away. I check myself for injuries and incredibly find none. Assessing my situation, I find there's no ice shelf nearby to ease the tension from the rope so Sean can begin setting up a pulley system to extract me. I look down, nothing but blackness. I look at the wall of blue ice directly in front of me, take a deep breath, and peer up into the tiny hole into which I'd fallen when I'd punched through the snow bridge spanning the crevasse. The same bridge Sean had crossed without incident as we made our way up Alaska's Matanuska Glacier toward Mount Marcus Baker in the Chugach Range. 
You get to look down one more time, then that's it, I tell myself out loud. Again, there's only a black void yawning beneath me, swallowing everything, even sound. My stomach clenches. I remind myself to breathe. Sean, are you okay, I yell as I clamp my mechanical ascenders to the rope in preparation to climb up. Yeah, I'm all right, but I'm right on the edge, he calls back. I can't set an anchor to get out of the system, so don't ascend. We're going to have to wait for the other guys to catch up. Time passes. The onset of hyperthermia means I can't control my body from periodically shaking. To ignore my fear of dying, I gaze meditatively at the ice a few feet in front of me as I dangle. The miniature air pockets found in the whiter ice near the top of the glacier have long since been compressed, producing the mesmerizing beauty of centuries-old turquoise ice. Slightly deeper into the crevasse is ice that has been there since long before the Neanderthals. I hang suspended in silence, mindful not to move out of fear of dislodging Sean. Giving my full attention to the ice immediately within my vision, I focus on how the gently refracting light from above seems to penetrate and reflect off the perfectly smooth wall. Staring into it, the blue seems infinite. Despite the danger of my situation, the glacier's beauty calms me. Delicate snowflakes and their infinite possibilities of form land on mountainous terrain. Under its own weight, the snow is compressed into glaciers that scour and shape the face of the earth. Countless millions of tons of weight, aided by the force of gravity, push and pull these frozen rivers downhill, carving out cirques and troughs from uplifted geologic plates and sculpting the majestic heights of mountains that I have been drawn to since I was young. Eventually, our other two teammates arrive and work to extract Sean from his perch just six inches from the edge of the crevasse. All three of them set up a three-way pulley system. Laboriously, my teammates begin to haul me up, inches at a time, out of what nearly became my tomb. I continue to focus on the delicately shifting blades of blue in the ice as I draw closer to the surface, mesmerized by its raw beauty. My teammates pull me up to the lip of the crevasse. I repeatedly plunge the pick of my ice axe into the snow and haul myself out, never before as grateful for being on top of a glacier. I stand and gaze up at the mountain to the west, behind which the sun has just set. Snow plumes stream off one of its ridges, turned into ruddy red ribbons by the setting snow. Snowflakes flicker as they float into space. As relief floods my shivering body, I roar in gratitude and relief. Utterly overwhelmed by being alive and surrounded by the beauty of the mountain world, I hug each of my three climbing partners. Now safe, it sinks in how close to death I've been. That was Earth Day 2003. In hindsight, I believe the emotion I felt then stemmed in part from something else. A deeper consciousness that the ice that I had seen, which had existed for eons, was vanishing. Seven years of climbing in Alaska had provided me with a front row seat from where I could witness the dramatic impact of human-caused climate disruption. Each year we found the toe of the glacier had shriveled further. Each year for the annual early ice season festival on this glacier, we found ourselves hiking further up the crusty frozen mud left behind by rapidly retreating terminus. Each year the parking lot was moved closer to the glacier only to be left further away as the ice withdrew. Even sections of Denali, which stands over 20,000 feet tall and is roughly 250 miles from the Arctic Circle, had undergone startling changes. The ice of its glaciers was disappearing quickly. Our planet is rapidly changing, and what we are witnessing is unlike anything that has occurred in nature or even geologic history. The heat-trapping nature of carbon dioxide and methane, both greenhouse gases, has been scientific fact for decades, and according to NASA, there is no question that increased levels of greenhouse gases must cause the Earth to warm in response. Evidence shows that greenhouse gas emissions are causing the Earth to warm ten times faster than it should. And the ramifications of this are being felt quite literally throughout the entire biosphere. 
The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption by Dar Jamil. And welcome back, Rondi in Vashon, Washington. Hey, Rondi, what's up? Hi, good morning, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. On your comment about the insect apocalypse and uh, fossil fuels, I have never heard you say anything about industrial agriculture. Oh, that's the key to the and whole thing. If I didn't say it on the air, my apologies, but in my op-ed, I point out that pesticides and herbicides made from fossil fuels or with fossil fuels are the principal, are one of the, along with, you know, the loss of habitat, are the, are the two major things that are destroying our insects. Okay, great. Absolutely. So we're good on that one. Yeah. So the second one is to tiptoe close to the red meat thing. Mm -hmm. And that is to say that Audubon Society is now putting a certificate of approval. And what it says on the certificate is no cows, no grass, no birds, which is a way of saying regenerative agriculture is the way to go if you want birds to succeed and live and not die of... It's a little disingenuous, uh, Rondi. There were no cows in North America before Europeans showed up. We brought them from, from Europe. And uh, there were no horses either. So to say that there would be no birds in North America with no cows just doesn't logically make any sense. Well, he's talking about ruminants, not, you know, well, I mean, there's, there let's were say mil that millions then. of buffalo. Yeah, because the, because the buffalo, the sheep, the, you know, the, the, the herding, the grazing animal, I mean, you know, this is, oh, what's his name? The guy who has uh, made himself famous saying, you know, we need to restore the grasslands. I'm guessing you know who I'm talking about. But in any case. Uh, yes, yes, you're talking about Alan Savory. Alan Savory, thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, he's been, he's been debunked in as much as he was engaging in massive hyperbole saying, you know, if we just, you know, turned the grasslands over to the ruminants, everything would be wonderful. But he hasn't been debunked in as much as, you know, that's part of the natural process of grasslands, of that particular type of ecosystem, is that it's regularly turned over by hooved animals. Thank you for the call. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll continue the conversation. Same time, same place. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It's something that you've got to participate in. So share the good word about progressive media. Get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.